take our Bibles and turn to Colossians chapter 3. We've had a wonderful morning of worship. I hope that you've enjoyed it. There's a couple of quick announcements I feel like I need to make, and I'm sorry to interrupt the, the word with that, but we do have conference this morning immediately after the service. I have forgotten a total of about four times already. And so if I start to walk out of here this morning without conference, somebody holler at me. And we've got conference. Uh, it'll, it won't take but a moment. It's just a regular quarterly conference. And also at 3.30 today, we have a meeting with uh, ushers and greeters. And that is uh, if you're actively an usher greeter or if you'd like to be. If you're interested in working one of the doors or helping with things, we need help in that area. We would love to see husband and wife teams. Um, and we don't have a lot of that right now. And it's challenging with the structure of the building the way it is, but uh, that all is gonna change in a matter of months, and so we're trying to get ahead of that a little bit. So we're meeting today at 3.30. If you're interested at all, uh, please come to the meeting. It'll be, uh, 
informative and nothing, no pressure, nothing like that. So, uh, all right. Uh, so we're going to be in Colossians chapter three uh, this morning. We actually are in the ninth week of this uh, study that we've been doing on 3D Christianity. Um, we've got uh, this week and one more on the Christian home. And then we're going to be moving out into a couple of other areas of life. Um, we have a couple of weeks that we want to talk about career and how those things, uh, how Christianity can be reflected in your career properly, uh, scripturally speaking. Um, and, then, and then we have a, a couple of closing um, messages. But uh, this week and next week on the home, and then we'll move on from that. Today we want to talk about the character of a Christian home. And uh, as we consider this idea of character or the character of a Christian home, we have, we're going to have to do some review of materials, but we're going to do that with an effort to kind of put it all together and draw maybe a more complete picture. I believe we also need to consider the Christian home from three values, uh, that being relationships, second reason or the reality of a Christian home, and then finally the results. What are the results of a Christian home? And I think this passage speaks to those three things. Uh, when we think about relationships, we're talking about methodologies, honestly. When we think about reasons or realities, we're thinking about motives or means. How do we accomplish these things? And when we look towards the idea of results, we're, we're talking about the hopes of maturity, the hopes of maturation, and what that brings to us, not only now, but in eternity. And so I hope that you'll bear with me uh, through this. We're going to be reading Colossians 3, 18 through 21. If you want to stand, you're standing in reverence of the Word of God. And uh, We'll read together and then ask the Lord to, to bless our time together. Beginning in verse 18. Uh, wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as is fit in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and be not bitter against them. Uh, children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing unto the Lord. Fathers, provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. Servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service, as men pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing God, and whatsoever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men, knowing that of the Lord ye shall receive reward of the inheritance, for ye serve the Lord Christ, but he that doeth wrong shall receive for the wrong which he hath done, and there is no respect of persons. That's the passage we'll consider this morning. Would you go to the Lord with me in prayer and uh, ask him to provide for you clarity, illumination, and obedience today. You pray for me. I'll pray for you. Father, I pray that you would, uh, Lord, help us as we come to this passage. Uh, God, we're so thankful to be here, as we've already stated. We're grateful for the time that we've enjoyed in fellowship and in worship. Uh, Lord, I'm thankful that uh, we have exalted the name of Christ in song. And Lord, I'm uh, pleased with the opportunity, Lord, to open the Word of God and look therein and discern truths and apply those truths. And God, I'm asking you now for 
help and clarity and understanding and illumination and application and an obedience to those things that you show us. And Lord, we're asking uh, you, Father, your blessed Holy Spirit who is amongst us to lead us, to guide us, to direct us, uh, Father, to challenge us, to convict us, and Father, where necessary to convert. Uh, Lord, I pray, Father, that you would help us as we seek to study and learn today. In Jesus' name, amen. So we'll, we'll get right in, looking at verse 18, uh, 19, 20, and 21. Uh, what you see there, you see uh, the relationship aspect of the Christian home. And there are certainly four relationships to be considered. We've discussed a fifth when we talked about grandparents and elder mentors. Uh, I would suggest to you that if you get these four in the right spot, that will take care of itself. Uh, but these four relationships that are very distinct and play a definitive part in the character of the home, the wife to the husband, the husband to the wife, the child to the parents, and the father and or parents to the children. I think that's pretty evident. It's relatively clear there. Uh, but, you know, uh, simplicity is good at times. Uh, in fact, many believe it is profundity in and of itself. So over the last several weeks, we've defined the role of the Christian wife, the husband, the child, and as we've stated, the grandparent. But this morning, what I'm hoping to, to see is a completed image of those relationships together in the context of the character of the home, character of the home. I think it should probably go without saying that each of these relationships is a continual effort, right? Yes, the, all the wives are nodding their head vigorously. <laughs> I mean, you're not going to arrive. It's just not going to occur that way. There's, there's a carnal, worldly picture wherein you can arrive. But in, in truth, and in the scripture presenting that to us, there, there is no arrival. There is a continual effort at being a Christian wife or being a Christian husband or becoming, if you will. And not only are they continual effort, they are typically speaking a work in progress. Most of us probably have pretty significant chinks in the armor or dents in the whatever. However you want to determine that, we have shortcomings. And some of those we, we are overcoming and some of them are overcoming us. And it is a continual effort. It is a progressive uh, operation that is part of our progressive sanctification. So it is a work in progress. Also, each of these relationships, whether it be the wife or the husband or the children or the parent, each of those relationships is responsible for and unto itself. And when we determine that, uh, life is going to become simpler, li likely not easier, but simpler. Uh, you're not, you're not your Holy Spirit. Uh, you're not the Holy Spirit to your spouse. You're not. You're you're not their guru. You're not their spiritual one. You are not responsible for them, nor can you be other than in the form of a partner and or a help me 
but you are most definitely responsible for and unto yourself and your activities as it relates to what God calls a Christian husband or a Christian wife. And truthfully, uh, the scriptures present this in this manner, and I believe it to be true, one is likely going to respond to the other reciprocally. So if you are a heathen husband, you're probably going to have a heathen wife. And if you are a genuine, loving, con uh, concerned, mindful, heartful Christian husband, most likely that's what you're going to receive. And, and I think it's, it's very interesting that we, we want to paint those outliers as, well, what if I and she, look, you just worry about you. Amen. You do what you're supposed to do and watch the Lord work. So they're, they're, they're not responsible for others. They're responsible unto themselves. And then lastly, each of them is as unto the Lord. Uh, we ought to write that on several surfaces of our house. As unto the Lord. Because that speaks volumes about motive and motivation. So just as we early on we defined when we first began this. We talked about what is Christian marriage. And indeed uh, it is between a man and a woman. But more importantly who are both born again believers. And therefore two Christians who are married. You have Christian marriage. That's the definition of Christian marriage. It has nothing to do with how it was accomplished or any of those things. So also, if the home is to be a Christian home, each person within the home is going to have to seek to live as defined in the scriptures that speak to family and home. It's, it's, I know that sounds like a, 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 a simplicity or... or a, a no-brainer, I guess we would say. But honestly, how many of us uh, expect one thing while performing another way? We do it all the time in, in financial aspects, right? I'm going to be Rockefeller, and so I'm going to go out and buy everything I can't afford. Well, those two things don't go together, right? And, and so I'm, I expect my home to be a Christian home and my wife to be a Christian wife, but... I'm just going to be any way I want to be. Well, those two things don't go together. And so it, it comes down to a, a, a very simple reality of, am I willing to be obedient unto the things which the Lord has shown me are necessary in order for me to be a Christian husband? And then if I am, I can expect to begin building a Christian home. And anything other than that is just platitudes. So... When we look at that, that concept of a Christian home and living in, in, in the, the definition that God has given us, this is one of the premium passages. And this is where we get into a little bit of a review of materials, and I'll try not to bog down here very long. But the first thing that he says is, uh, wives, submit unto your husbands, your own husbands, as is fit in the Lord. So what we're looking for in a Christian home, one of the characteristics is going to be a submitted and loyal wife. That is the wife to the husband relationship. That's going to be in place. If, if the home is to reflect Christian character, it's going to begin with these relationships as we've defined them. So that means a wife submitted unto the husband. And we've already stated this. I want to make sure I say it again. That is not a term of rank and order. Rather, it is a 
uh, excuse me, it is a term of rank and order rather than a definition of value and importance. One is equal to the other, but there is a rank and an order as God has declared it, Christ being the umbrella over all, then the husband, the wife, and then the children. That is the order. And so we would recognize that she is submitted to the husband as the church is submitted unto Christ and all of that that, that entails. And we've studied that significantly. The second thing we see is that husbands love your wife and be not bitter against them. So uh, conveniently for the sake of alliteration, as we need a loyal and a submitted wife, we need a loving and a sweet husband. Let me tell you something, that's not an exaggeration. You ought not be a jerk in the house. You just should not be. And we've all seen them. Some of us may have been them. You should not be. Those people in that home most likely love you and understand you and certainly know you better than anybody in the entire world. You should not be a jerk at home. There ought to be a sweet temperament about that. And so we see this loving and sweet husband. And, and again, the husband is the head of the home as the scriptures lays out. But this is a term of responsibility and accountability. That's what it is. It is not a declaration of authority and power. Go ahead and exert your authority over that wife and see how that gets you. You just go ahead and do that. Uh, it is not a declaration of authority and power. He is to love his wife as Christ loved the church, that being defined by dying and giving himself for her. That's how the husband is to love. Then we see the, the idea of the children obey your parents. Holy, obedient children, not H-O-L-Y, W-H-O-L-L-Y. Holy, completely obedient children. That is the child of the parent. And so this is a command. It's not a suggestion. It is a command. It is, Paul would say in Ephesians that it's the first commandment with promise. And the promise there is relative to the passage in Exodus where the promise is a well and a long life. And so it's not up for debate. Obedience is required of children. And this is where it comes to you. The parents should seek to help the children comply. And uh, comply with the command as it's right in the Lord and thereby pleasing unto him. Well, well, we say, well, what? I mean, how do we not? Well, you do not in that you take up their part of the fight outside of the home in every case. That is undermining to teaching obedience. And it's hard. It's hard not to go their part sometimes. It is, it is hard not to defend them and, and to fight for them. But what you're teaching, you've got to be very careful about how you do that because what you're teaching them is that they have certain rights that, that overrule or supersede the authority that has presented itself and that will carry home. I know parents that don't even enforce obedience at home. They come up with this idea of free-range parenting. I, I don't want to hurt your feelings. It's lazy. That's what it is. It is I don't want to continually be involved with that little me. And so I'm going to let it run its course. 
and hopefully it won't hurt me too bad. That's lazy. So when we're preaching and, and, and exhorting and admonishing about the obedience of the children, the admonishment and the exhortation is to the parent to help them be obedient because that's fit in the Lord. It is right in the eyes of God. The, the scriptures, and we covered this when we talked about children, the scriptures teach us that if we love our children as love is defined in the scriptures, we will chastise and reprove them. Literally, the scripture says you'll not spare the rod. If you do, it spoils the child. And so I don't even want to have a conversation about your form of discipline. Just have one. Amen. Whatever it is, have a form of discipline and enforce it. And every kid is different. Every home is different. Understood. I had two. They were completely different. I had one. I just about had to beat that boy to death. I had a daughter, all I had to do was look at her and say, I'm disappointed, and she would crumble. Today, it's the same way today. It has not changed. And I, my suspicion is that in Carter's life, he will eventually get tired of getting beat to death. <laughs> and he will figure out what comply means. But he hasn't learned it yet. That's okay. He'll figure it out. But we, we've got to help him in that way. And as we embark on... Rearing children through a right balance of love, discipline, and teaching. And that's the key. Then we see verse 21. Verse 21 says, Fathers, provoke not your children to anger lest they be discouraged. So I would say this. As, the, as the, it relates to uh, parents to children, and I'll define the father part in a moment. Edified and encouraged children. That's what's going to be a part of a Christian home. They're going to be built up and encouraged in those things that are correct. Edified and encouraged. If we, if we refer to Paul's other mention of this in Ephesians chapter 6, it's a little, little clearer. But let me, let me handle the father first thing first. Fathers, provoke not your children. Now, uh, that looks like it's lopsided, doesn't it? Like you would expect that to say parents, provoke not your children. Fathers and mothers, provoke not your children. That's what you would expect. And so I, I went and looked. I didn't do a, a great lengthy study here, but... I did look at several different uh, versions. I looked at several commentaries and looked, of course, at the original. In the original, the word is pater, P-A-T-E-R. That is father. That's what that is. That is father. So then you're left scratching your head like, okay, uh, why? Well, and this is what I discovered. And, and first off, I discovered, which is what is true with most commentaries, most of them skipped it. Because if it's hard, they just don't talk about it. They, they say hard thing and move on to the next thing. Uh, but a couple of them dealt with it. And, and the book that I put on the reading list this year, Larry Christensen, he dealt with it. And I remembered that he did from, from teaching that book. And, and so some, some people would believe that it's really speaking to both parents. Uh, and, and they would say that because this. They would say, well, the mother is more likely to coddle and the father is more likely to be disposed to anger or provocation. And, and you know what? Depending on personality, that may be true. But this is what really matters. What really matters is what is the verse saying? What the verse is saying, if you look at Ephesians chapter 6, provoke not your children, rather nurture, uh, raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. That's the key. So... 
You, you may have come from a family where the mother did the disciplining. Uh, you know, that she was at home all the time. She did the disciplining. But mine, for the most part, was she did the maintaining and kept a list. <laughs> and then when dad got home, he cleaned it up, right? And, all right, it's my turn now. So, uh, but, but at any rate, the key is not who does the disciplining. The key is that there is discipline and that it is meted out in this trichotomy of behaviors, which includes love, teach, and discipline. Provoke not. That is a negative implication, and the positive of it is love them. Don't provoke your children. Love them. You can hear somebody say that. Provoke not. Rather, love them. And then nurture. Uh, Nurture has to do with teaching. And admonish them. That is, uh, uh, excuse me, nurture is discipline. uh, Excuse me, nurture is teaching. Admonish is discipline. So that's the three. You love them, you teach them, and you discipline them. That's that's how we uh, bring that. And so in doing that, we bring about a child that is well-balanced. And so we would say, okay, well, how do, we, how do we do that? Well, we do it by seeking to build and prepare the child rather than tear down and discourage. So, by the way, this feeds into a lot of popular teaching. They've just removed the object of the lesson. But the teaching is correct. You should not say to a child, you're so stupid or you're so dumb or, or you're so bad or you're so this. Or You should reinforce the positive. You can do that while pointing them towards God, right? And so we, we're seeking to edify and to encourage. And then when it comes to the idea of love, well, how do we love? Well, we love the way that Christ loved. That's the example that is concurrent through all of the scriptures and as certainly in this book in Colossians, Paul is writing to a group of, group of people trying to help them be complete as a believer. And so that would carry through this, this book. And that, well, how did Christ, uh, what was Christ like in dealing with others? Well, he was loving. He was kind. He was a teacher. He was forgiving. He was merciful. He was gracious. He was long-suffering. That's all. That's all you have to do. You just have to, in the middle of a 60-hour work week, with bills that you can't afford, and a car that barely got you there, and a dissatisfied wife, be loving and compassionate and long-suffering and patient. But you can do that as you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. If you're not born again, you're not going to be able to do these things. But if you're born again, you're, you're indwelt with the ability to do that. Many times, people are their worst at home behind closed doors. You know that, right? We realize that. They present one picture publicly. The other picture is totally different. They're at worst behind closed doors. and the, the, Everybody thinks they're great. The family's great. The situation's great. It's all perfect. And then when it explodes, they're like, well, I didn't see that coming. Well, it's because you never saw behind closed doors. Well, the problem with that is, is that, that being yourself, letting it loose, venting it there behind closed doors, you are painting 
not only for your spouse and husband, you are responsible for her spiritual guidance, not only for her, but for the children. You're painting a completely duplicitous picture wherein you present this idea of Christianity that is not profitable, it is not consistent, and they are literally discouraged from even following the Lord because there's no benefit in it. They would rather just be honest. And there's something commendable in that honesty. So we, we edify and encourage the children the way Christ edified and encouraged those who followed him. So somebody might say, okay, I get the relationships. You've been harping on them for four or five weeks. I understand that. I get that. So what is the, what is the why of it all? As in, why should I do thus and thus? What is my motivation? Well, I think that's what the Apostle Paul uh, seeks to surmise when he's talking about uh, verse 23, I believe, the reasons for and or the reality of a Christian home. In verse 23, uh, he says, uh, Whatsoever you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord and not unto men. So there's the why. As, a, as a, an unregenerate sinner, someone who's never been born again, there is no why for you. <laughs> you go and do what the world told you to do because you're one of them anyway. But if you've been born again, then this concept of as unto the Lord begins to, to invade every aspect of your life. In fact, if you look back in chapter 3 um, at verse 17, he says it there as well. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks unto God the Father by him. You could see that as a precedent to what we've already read, but it's truly uh, uh, concluding what has already been stated about being uh, Christ-like and walking as the risen Christ. And so it's that concept of as unto the Lord, and that becomes the reason for or the reality of a Christian home. It truly should not be a concern. But the problem is we live in a society that is increasingly hostile towards any form of purity or traditionalism as we would see it uh, when it comes to defining roles of the various relationships within the family. It is constantly under attack. And, and what we've previously stated, and we know this to be true, is that, and it shouldn't be a surprise, the marriage and the family are the oldest institution known to man. They are the first institution uh, subscribed by God, and therefore the family and the marriage is the root or the core of the hottest attack. It always has been, and it will continue to be. Until such time as it has disintegrated completely the society that we would recognize. So somebody says, okay, well, it doesn't look like they're attacking the family. It looks like they're expanding the family. No. The, the, the enemy that we have is subtle and he is cunning. And by nature, he is not going to directly attack a thing as much as he is going to create confusion and chaos around that thing. Satan's a one-trick pony. If you go back to Genesis chapter 3, what he did to attack the Word of God 
was he embellished it. He, he uh, added to it, deceptively enhanced it, so as to redefine it. And in so doing, he confused Eve. Adam made a choice. That's exactly what the enemy has tried to do with the family. He has attempted, God is the originator, you can write this down, and Satan is an imitator. And everything that God does and does right, Satan seeks to do and does wrong. But he will shade the right. It will be close for a while. And that's what he has done. He has attempted through society to redefine the roles of men and the roles of women. He's offered a palatable to society alternative to the traditional family model. And in so doing, he's dragged many away from the truth. So when I come to that question, what is my motivation not only to discern the truth concerning family, but also to perform it correctly in my role? Well, it is because I am born again and everything I do, I do as unto the Lord. And then you notice the word he uses there, heartily. Whatever you do, do it heartily. It's very interesting to me. Typically, that looks like an old word. Indeed, it is to some extent. You don't see a lot of people walking around saying that. Uh, but I looked across several translations. Do you know that across several versions and translations, even in a couple of paraphrases, the word is used heartily? It's kind of interesting to me when one of those older words makes its way across a lot of places. I began to look at that, and this is, this is what it, it speaks to, the means of the relationship. The Greek word is suki, which we transliterated would be psyche. You recognize that word? It has to do with your soul. It is the, the inner life of something. It can denote that which gives life. It can also be rendered breath, soul, heart, life, lives, etc. It is the antithesis of doing something lightly or half-hearted. It is, it is the idea of performing or fighting or loving or serving or caring or pleasing with the whole person. It is as if your life depended on it. That is what makes you live. That is what you live to do. That's how or at what intensity we should perform our duties within the family sphere. As if it is what we were created to do. Do you know that by and large, if you were to separate people from one another and start talking to them about what they were created to do, do you know, I don't know this for a fact, I, I did no research, but I would be willing to bet that the number would be upward at 60 or 65% that would define for you their career as what they were created to do. I was, I was man, I was made to work on cars. I was made to make money. I was made to play ball. I was made to play. No, you weren't. You were made to honor and glorify God. 
And as, a, as an adult Christian male who's married, you were made to love and nourish that family in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. That's what you were made to do. Everything else is a means to an end. It's this concept of how do I perform it? Well, I perform it like everything else doesn't matter. This is what I'm going to do heartily as unto the Lord. That's his next phrase, as unto the Lord. Or as to the Lord is the same. That speaks to the motive of the relationship. What is my motive in submission? What is my motive in service? What is my motive in love or loyalty or sweetness or honor or obedience or edification or encouragement? What motivates me to do those things? Well, because I'm doing them as unto the Lord. I'm not submitting to that, that man who at times doesn't do the things I want him to do because he's God. I'm submitting to him because there is a God. And that God called me to that submission. And I'm not loving that woman uh, more than anything in the world and, and willing to give myself for her because she is all there is. I'm doing so because she's the one God gave me to do that with. In submission as unto him. And, and that becomes my motive to serve the Lord God. My desire should be, my goal should be to please him, to rightly spend the life that he's given me in glorifying him, the one who gave it to me, and, and, and thereby uh, proving Paul would say, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you give yourself as a living sacrifice, proving what is that perfect and acceptable will of God. That that becomes my desire, and I do that in solidarity to the Lord because He is the author and finisher, the founder and the finisher. He is the one that began my faith, and that one endured this cross, despising the shame for me. And all he's asked me to do is live for him. And he's given me a perfect prescription by which to do it. Amen. And in the midst of all of this effort, I'm doing this for him. And Paul clearly states in the last part of the verse, not unto men. And so what that says to me is that that is the antithesis of the motivation. What I should not be concerned with how I am not motivated, who I do not seek to please, is society or organizations or movements or men who are not also seeking to please God and in so doing, clinging unto the word of God faithfully and fervently. So when society offers me a redefinition, I say, no, thank you. I have a definition. When society offers me an enlightenment, I say to them, I don't need your enlightenment. I have the illumination of the Holy Spirit of God and the eternally settled word of God whereby to live my life. Well, you're thus and thus. I may be. But what I'm going to be is obedient and faithful. What are the results? So we see this picture of the relationships. We see this picture of the realities or the reasons for 
Well, what are the results? Well, the results, uh, what are the results of a well-ordered Christian home? Well, uh, he says here in verses 24 and 25, he defines it for us, knowing that of the, of the Lord you shall receive the reward of the inheritance for you serve the Lord Christ. He goes on to say that one that does wrong will receive in his body for what he's done wrong. And there's no respect of person. So what I would say that the actuality speaks to the, the maturity of our efforts to live for Christ and, the, and to direct our families unto the Lord. And as surely as our motivation is the Lord and our desire to live for him, we also have to see that the result is that we're going to stand before him and receive a judgment. That's the eternal result. You can't receive a reward without first being judged. And so we're going to be judged, and at that judgment, we're going to receive, if we're born again, an inheritance, a promise of the inheritance. It's simply the reward for those things done in our body, whether they be good or bad. That's how Paul would describe it in other places. There, we also see there's going to be a judgment, because if there's a reward, there must first be a judgment. We will be judged. We also see, and I think this is frightening, that there's no partiality. There's no respecter of persons. Doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter where you were born, doesn't matter what color you are, if you want to go by a race, it doesn't matter. It's, it's incorrect anyway, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether you were rich or poor. The denomination doesn't matter. None of those things matter. There's no respect of persons. Doesn't matter how somebody else treated you. You're going to answer for what you did. And in relation to the things that God assigned unto you and for you to accomplish. So those, those are the results of eternity. Those are the results of judgment. But what are the results as we strive and live in this life? Well, I said a little bit of it earlier. A loving husband will likely have a loving wife that appreciates him and respects him. Uh, hateful, mean-spirited husbands probably going to have two or three of them. And none of them are going to love and respect him. Uh, a submissive wife is likely going to enjoy the love and admiration and respect of a sincere, loving husband. Children who obey and honor and respect their parents enjoy greater successes in life. They live a longer life. And, and I, I know there's outliers. Right? There's, there's no need to argue about it. Chances are, if you were raised to honor and obey and respect your mother and father, you do so with the rest of authority in your life. You're not likely to be cut down early due to that. Parents who love and teach and discipline their children enjoy the fruits of that relationship for many years. And the scripture says that those kids will not depart from it. They'll return to it. So the results are manifold, but the, all of them are honoring to God and desirable to man. Those are the characteristics of a Christian home. I wonder this morning if you would just be completely honest between you and the Lord. And would you answer the question, does my home reflect the Christian character that is defined here? Is this how my home reflects? 
And if not, would you, would you be honest and determine, is that something you even desire? Because if you have no desire for it, my suspicion is you're not born again and you have bigger problems than whether or not you and your wife get along. And I'd love to spend a few minutes with you in that area. If you are born again, is it something that you're willing to work towards? To surrender for? To submit unto the Lord and his yoke? Would you stand with me this morning? Your head's bowed and your eyes closed. I'm just going to have a moment of invitation. Of course, the altar is open. Or you can pray where you are. But I hope that you'll be honest with the Lord and with yourself. Father, I pray that you'd bless this time of invitation. And Father, I pray you'd move us beyond ourselves to obedience to you. Lord, we love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Father, we thank you for this good day. Thank you, Lord, for these that were here, for the attentiveness. God, I pray as we prepare to depart and, Lord, enter into conference, God, I pray that you would help us to meditate on these truths, to think about them, to consider them, and to work towards them in our lives. Lord, I pray if there's one here this morning that's never accepted you as their Savior, that they would not go far today before they stop and find a way, a person, someone, to share with them the truths of eternal life. And Father, I pray.